morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3, verse 1. Our Christmas concert is today, and we hope that uh, you folks would come on out. I, uh, I'd like to say that we've worked very hard as a choir, and our brother Jared has, has just been working painstakingly to get this put together with the, the school. It's, it's just a tremendous time for worship and celebration for this time of year, and we, we hope that you folks could, could come out and uh, get, a, get a real blessing for this. Uh, men's Bible study is uh, Tuesday at 10 a.m. at McLeod's. Prayer meeting resumes this Wednesday at 7 p.m. <clears throat> uh, our church here at Thornville will be hosting Sovereign Grace Baptist Association Men's Retreat, January 26th and 27th. Those willing to house men, see uh, Brother George McLeod. Uh, guys will be bringing their sleeping bags. We will provide breakfast for Saturday morning. And I will be one of the cooks, along with our brother Dale, so be forewarned. Uh, our SGBA Winter Blast uh, for Youth is February 2nd through the 4th. See the posters on the help board. And if you have questions, you can contact Laura Clayton or uh, our brother Jerry Lou. Uh, tithing envelopes for the new year on the foyer table. Uh, Sign-up sheet and instructions there as well. Uh, next Sunday, no evening service because of Christmas Eve. If you would, take a look on the left side of your uh, folders here. Just peruse down for our church praying. We tend to overlook this a lot. We, we, we have brothers and sisters that are, that are sick continually. Diane Sagal is suffering with blood clots in her lung and leg. I know how painful that is because I've gone through that myself, and it's, it's very debilitating, and it could be deadly if, if not acted upon. Brenda Roth, under doctor's care, she just had a procedure this week uh, with uh, something on, on uh, the face they, they thought might have been cancer, but praise God, it turned out uh, to be negative so far. So. Jerry Rafka, viral bronchial infection. Uh, it just we see when we get hit hard, we get hit hard and fast and continually uh, with all the illness. So keep our brothers and sisters in prayer and, and, and look at every day that, that God has given to us. That when we wake up, it's just a blessing to us and, and we give glory to Him. So uh, just keep that. Keep that in mind, please. Our scripture for meditation is Luke 3, verses 2 through 18. That would be 1593 in your pew Bible. Uh -huh. 
Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service with opening prayer? Tom, would you lead us in opening prayer? Please remain standing. Good morning. Can you take your brown hymnal, the brown one? Nope, I lied. I'm so sorry. I misspoke. The red one is what I really meant. The red one. And turn to 
here. I know you were the first hand, but someone got to me before service and asked, and it was Pastor George. I'm sorry, Andrew. Maybe next week, okay? Yes, Pastor. George. Uh, what? <laughs> Page 43 in the brown. Page 43 in the brown. Your reason for picking this hymn? Well, I thought it went real well with what Jared talked about in Sunday school, but when you think about it, you could almost say that any song about Christ is a Christian song. So. Amen.
Would you stand with us for our scripture reading for this morning? The readings from Malachi 3, verse 1, plus all of chapter 4, pages 1490, 1491. Thank you. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the great prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. At this time, the choir has a special.
ask you to stand one more time and turn in your brown hymnal to number 133. Oh, I'm sorry, 136. I'm just having all sorts of trouble reading this morning. 133 in the brown. 136. Sir, 6. 136. 136, the first Noel. And it is in the brown. It is in the brown. Thank you.
Our scripture text this morning is Matthew, or Malachi rather, chapter 3, first verse, and then all of uh, chapter 4 of Malachi. Last week we studied uh, Malachi's prophecy concerning the coming king of Israel and the redeemer of men. We did see the unique position of Malachi in the biblical canon of scripture. It's the last word from God to men for 400 years in which there were no active prophets. Alexander the Great conquered the known world during that period of time and after his death his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. With no new revelations from God, the Jews were left to concentrate on their existent writings. During that time, they produced the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Apocrypha were written in that time, books that were considered not canonical, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found during that time. Beginning... It was the beginning also of the wide-scale diaspora, that is, the dispersion of the Jews. Guess what? After the Babylonian and Persian captivity, they did not go home to Palestine. Some did, of course, but the majority of them dispersed throughout the world and uh, took up residence in the Greco-Roman world. The beginning of the synagogues was during this 400-year period. The Jewish sects also began, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. So a lot happened in four centuries. In the time of Malachi, the people were discouraged. The glory of God's presence was absent from the temple. Remember, that was Zerubbabel's temple, not Solomon's. They accused God of not loving them. They accused God of not being just. Actually, it was their own sin that was responsible for their sorrow and pain. Today we want to look at John the Baptizer as the forerunner of the king, also referred to in the book of Malachi. And as we come to this, let's seek the Lord's presence. Our Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us of these Old Testament texts. Wonderful, wonderful truths. The beautiful truth, of course, is the fact that in the Old Testament, prophecies are made concerning what's going to happen in the New Testament. And that gives us great credibility to rest our thoughts and prayers on with regard to the integrity of the Scripture. Who can prophesy the future, have it 400 years come to pass, except God, who knows the future, plans the future, ordains everything that is. So I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that and to appreciate it. Teach us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he worked in all ages, but particularly, Lord, in the New Testament times, the coming of Christ. Bless our time together. Be with those of our people that are sick, and there are many out sick. We trust, Lord, that you will raise them up. For your glory, we pray these things. For our good, we pray these things. Amen. We're looking today from Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, the herald of the king, prophecy, and then fulfillment in the New Testament. Actually, Malachi introduced us to him in the first sentence of last week's sermon, chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. True, at this point, we're not told that this is John the Baptist. 
That information must await the arrival of the New Testament revelation, and in particular Jesus' own parallel between Malachi's words and his own. And as part of our study today, we're going to look at Jesus' statements about John. But consider first Malachi's second statement about John, also not known until later. I'm referring to John John, uh, to uh, Malachi 4 verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If we go to Luke chapter 1, you will have the account of the coming of John the Baptist. John's Father, Zechariah, was a priest in the days of Herod. He was, along with his wife, childless, because Elizabeth, his wife, was barren, and to complicate things, both of them were very, very old. We've seen this a number of times in our studies of the Old Testament, where the inability to have children was characterized by the couple being Old, I mean in their 80s, in their 90s, past the age of bearing children. But as he took his turn ministering in the temple, by the way, this is Herod's temple, not Solomon's, which was destroyed in the Old Testament times. An angel appeared to Zechariah as he prayed and told him that his prayers had been heard and that he and Elizabeth would have a son whom they were to name John, Luke 1, verse 13. You know, there are many couples that have prayed for children. My wife and I were in the same category five years before Jared came along. And we prayed about that. And so we find Zechariah praying because he and Elizabeth have no children. So they have this boy, he is named John. The angel says, name him John. But there was no one in their family named John, verse 61. And this angel had some interesting things to say to Zechariah about John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. That's part of verse 15, part of verse 16. Listen now to verse 17. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that's a quote from Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6 with some added information thrown in there. We learned last week that Israel, while seeking the uh, coming of the Lord, and bewailing the fact that he had not arrived, was nonetheless ill-prepared to meet him. Now the angels say of this John person that he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. you got to be prepared if you want to receive and see the Lord. And he mentions that in Luke 1 verse 17. How was he to do that? Well, by going before the Lord, we are told, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children. That's an actual quote of Malachi 4, verse 6. But instead of saying, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
which is in the Malachi text, the angel says, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Why? Wow, that's a different switch. Well, he was emphasizing that it is the children of the fathers who are in a state of disobedience and have abandoned righteousness. They're the ones that need to get their act together. In Malachi's day, yes, but even more so by the time of Christ, now 400 years later. But what fathers, what, what children are referred to? By fathers Malachi, and the angel referred to the forefathers of Israel's heritage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, probably any of the godly ancestors, Moses, David, men who walked with God. Men whose lives were characterized on the whole by faith and obedience. But the children, mm, that's another story. The children, the descendants, have abandoned righteousness. They have become disobedient. This was the deplorable state of Malachi's day that we studied last week. What were they doing? They were offering sick and crippled animals to God as though he would accept that. The priests were corrupt, taking bribes. The people were into easy divorce. They were robbing God of his tithe. All of this in Malachi 2, verse 16, Malachi 3, verse 8. And God's words through Malachi was this. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Malachi 3, verse 7. So the descendants are in a bad way. By the expression, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, these prophecies are suggesting that the heart of the godly forefathers will become the heart of the descendants. They're in a bad way, but things are going to change. And the hearts of the children, the descendants, will get on spiritual track with that of their forefathers. It's prophesied. John's ministry, among other things, was going to be instrumental in accomplishing this. The people here prepared to meet the Lord are so because they have no repentance in their lives concerning sin, no disposition to obey God. So John's main message was one of repentance, was it not? Of getting right with God. And by the use of the word of God, John plowed up the hard impacted soil of the people's hearts and made them receptive for the word of Christ which was to come in Jesus' own teaching. So what we have so far is a confirmation in the angel's annunciation to Zechariah that his son, born to Elizabeth, who is to be called John, is none other than the one about whom Malachi prophesied in our text. As confirmation that Zechariah, though initially unbelieving and full of doubts, eventually accepted the word from God about John, 
we have his own song of praise at John's birth in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and following, in which he says of John, his son, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That's an actual quote from Malachi 3, verse 1. So here then we have two confirmations. One from the angel quoting the prophecy of Malachi 4 concerning the coming of Elijah and applying it to John. And the other from Zechariah quoting the prophecy of Malachi 3 concerning the messenger of the Messiah and applying it to John. Both of these confirmations are found in the infallible word of God so there can be no doubt that it is God who is saying that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecies. Now we are ready in the second place to consider the teaching of Jesus concerning John. What did Jesus have to say about John? Well, on one occasion, Jesus asked the crowds concerning John, uh, what did you go out into the desert to see? And then he poses some possibilities. What did you go to see? A, a, a reed swaying in the wind? A man dressed in fine clothes? A prophet? Oh yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way before you. Which is a quote from Malachi 3 verse 1. And Jesus is still teaching here. And if you're willing to accept it. He is the Elijah who was to come that's Malachi 4. He who has an ear, let him hear. Matthew 11, verse 7 and following. Again, in a more private moment, Jesus confided in Peter, James, and John on the mountain after his transfiguration. And he says to them, to be sure, Elijah comes and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood. That he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Matthew 17 verse 11 through 13. So, we have confirmation then on many fronts that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy concerning the messenger who would come and prepare the people's hearts for the ministry of Christ. He was the Elijah foretold to come. This is very important. If you were in dispensational circles, they would insist that the prophecies of Malachi concerning Elijah's coming are yet future. 
that Elijah is one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who is to prophesy before the second coming of Christ. But Jesus said that the Malachi prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist, that Elijah came in John, that is, that John exhibited the spirit and power of Elijah's ministry, To look then for another fulfillment is to go beyond the words of our Lord and to claim to be wiser than him. You ask, why then then when the Jewish leaders sent emissaries to John asking, Are you Elijah? Why did he answer, I am not? Well, there were among the Jews an historic misunderstanding of Malachi's prophecy. They interpret Malachi's words to mean that Elijah, who was whisked away to heaven alive in a whirlwind, would one day come back on earth. The dispensational error copies the same misunderstanding. Thus, John's denial of being Elijah was to correct that error. No, I am not Elijah come from heaven. That's his words. I'm not Elijah come from heaven. This only confirms the words of Christ about John. He comes in the spirit of Elijah. Powerful spirit. Okay, then thirdly, what kind of a man was John and what was the nature of his ministry? Jesus said that he was certainly not a reed swaying in the wind, nor was he a man dressed in fine clothes in some palace. This means as to character, he was not a pushover. He's not one easily swayed by every wind of doctrine to come down the pike. That's good if you're going to be a prophet. He was knowledgeable of the truth of God's word. He was fully capable to go toe-to-toe with the teachers of the law, as he did... On this occasion in John 1, he was rock solid, knowing God and assured in his heart that what he taught the people was the word of God. And instead of fine clothes and sumptuous quarters and scrumptious foods, he dressed in camel's hair garment, lived in the desert, and ate locusts and wild honey on his diet. Matthew 3, verse 4. I picture John as something like uh, the mountain men who helped to settle our own country in the early days of our history. A man who knew how to survive in the most forbidding of climates and terrain, the desert. Matthew tells us that the people went out to the desert to see him. So that means that John seldom came to the city. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy says, A voice of one calling in the desert. People, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Compare Matthew 3.3 with Isaiah 40, verse 3. But that said, the people flocked to him. (laughs) 
Why? Well, for one thing, he was a prophet speaking for God once again after 400 years of silence, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People were eager to hear a fresh word from God. Let me tell you, if you hadn't heard anything from God for four centuries, you'd want to go out in the desert and hear this prophet too. This was the day before people had a personal Bible and could read as we do the Word of God whenever we want to. They couldn't do that. Even more important was the nature of John's message. What was it? Matthew 3, verse 2. Let me read it for you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Luke tells us, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, that's the Herod of Jesus' crucifixion, one of three sons of Herod the Great, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Etiaria, and Trachonitis, northeast of Palestine, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 3, verse 1 and following. So, his was a message of repentance from sins. When the people asked John to be a little more specific, he told them, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. Repent of your greed, in other words. And the one who has food should do the same. Luke 3, verse 11. In verse 13, he instructed the tax collectors, don't collect any more than you are required to do. You cheats. <laughs> That's what he was accusing them of. When some soldiers asked him, well, what should we do? He responded, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. They got blasted with three responsibilities. Why? Because they used their military might. To bully people, to extort money, to pad their bank accounts. All this is very practical stuff. And it tells us that John didn't just preach pious platitudes. He got into specific ways in which the people could prepare their hearts to receive the Lord. And his preaching was so outstanding and different that the people wondered in their hearts, Hmm, I wonder, could this John possibly be the Christ? But John set them straight, saying, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His widowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barns, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Luke 3, verse 16 and 17. 
And it says in verse 18, And with many other words John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. What we see here is a boldness in John's ministry, a confidence to speak for God. He was not intimidated by the threats of men, like his predecessor and namesake Elijah, who when called the troubler of Israel by wicked king Ahab, how did Elijah respond? I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family have. How'd you like to say that to King Ahab, who took people's lives? And so we read, John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Luke 3, verse 19, and the next verse says, Herod added to all of that by locking John up in prison. <laughs> I love this. He spoke boldly to Herod, even knowing, you know, if I say this, I, I'm probably going to get in trouble. This is not the way to influence and make friends with those in power and authority. He spoke the truth of God's word. You've taken your brother's wife. It's an illicit relationship. And he got slammed in prison. What do we learn from all this about the ministry of John? Well, firstly, being the king Jesus was, his arrival on the scene was announced by a herald, John the Baptist. We note in this that Jesus did not always do things by the normal protocol of the day. Some have portrayed the Lord as a nonconformist. They portrayed him as a revolutionary as one who came to overthrow, to destroy, to reconstitute society, on and on and on. But though his ministry was revolutionary, he was not a revolutionist. Though he challenged the order, the structure of things, he often worked within the conventional confines of the day in which he lived. The arrival of kings in biblical times was always preceded by a herald or an ambassador. The notion that a king would just show up unannounced, giving the people no time to make preparation worthy of receiving a dignitary, that was unheard of. The same was true of the Messiah, the anointed one of God. John came first. Jesus did not just pop on the scene. John's work was preparatory. But the difference in John's work as compared to other heralds was in the spiritual nature of his work. Neither Jesus nor John were interested in purple robes and banquet receptions and royal steeds to ride in on and so forth. Jesus was, he is, the Lord of glory, worthy of all these accoutrements and more which men lavish on dignitaries, but Jesus came as Redeemer. He came as Savior. And his kingship was first to be expressed in becoming the Lord of 
people's lives, the redeemer of their souls, the forgiver of their sins. And somehow the pomp, the prestige of men didn't fit that ministry. Remember how Jesus entered Jerusalem? Did he come in on a black steed with glowing red eyes and snorting? Here comes the king. No, he came in <laughs> on the foal of a donkey. That must have looked pretty silly. A grown man sitting on a baby donkey. But it was the humility of his ministry that he was emphasizing. And so John adapted his role to the meek and lowly character of Christ's upcoming ministry. How so? He dressed in humble clothing. He ate simple food. He lived in rustic, open-air surroundings. He stayed clear of places that were ornate, palaces, rich people's homes, and the like. You see, Christ was to be a refiner's fire. He was to be a launderer's soap, as we learned last week. And so we see John speaking often of judgment, warning both people and prince, in that case Herod, that there is a consequence for disobeying God and ignoring his anointed king. The religious leaders hated, they hated John for his ministry. Herod chopped off his head to silence him. But the people flocked to hear him because he dared to tell them the truth which would lead to repentance and faith in the coming Savior. In like fashion, Paul says of himself and he says to us, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. And the coming of the king which we are commissioned to announce is Christ's second coming. His return to earth to rule, to reign. And in light of that commission Paul says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians verse 21. That's the goal of our role as ambassadors for Christ. To implore men to be reconciled to God. God is making his appeal through you as a believer if you're being obedient. Now I've said this before and I'll say it again. You are the Bible the world reads. You are the Bible the world reads. Well, the message of our appeal from God is in the form, get it now, is in the form of a warning. Mm. A warning. John never came to the people of Israel preaching, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Never did ever preach that. 
Listen to his words to the crowds who came to him for baptism. We read it earlier. You brood of vipers. <laughs> There's a way to win people. You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe, hmm, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke 3, verse 7. Wow, there's a message. And it was this scathing message which stripped away their self-confidence and their religious veneer and convicted them to ask John, oh, oh, what should we do then? And what followed were all those answers that we looked at earlier that John gave to the people the tax collectors, the soldiers, how to reform their lives by repenting of their sin. This is how men prepare for the coming of Christ. They get right with God about their sin. This is the only way they can prepare for Jesus' return. I am not suggesting, of course, that we invent a message about Christ, which is not true. No, none of that. But what is the message of Christ's second coming? What is the warning, if any at all? Well, let me read some scriptures for you. John 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus' own words. A time is coming when all who see, Excuse me, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, the Son of Man, and come out of their graves, those who have done good will rise to live, those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Hmm, that's sobering. Matthew 25, verse 41 and following. When the Son of Man comes and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Peter put it this way, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 2 Peter 3, verse 7. Paul said it this way, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. <coughs> the wrath of God. Colossians 3, verse 5. And Jude, brother of our Lord, he wrote it this way. <coughs> Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he left in darkness 
bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Jude, verse 5 through 7. Or John in Revelation 16 describes the seven bowls of God's wrath associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And may I say that virtually every, every New Testament author speaks in one form or another of judgment accompanying the return of Christ. And so the only way to prepare sinners for his coming is to issue warnings about sin. If you preach the love of God, you will not wake them up. They will go to sleep. If you let your mother go on thinking that all is well with her soul because of her church affiliation and her loyalty to attendance, you do her no good. If you, think, if you let your father think he's ready to meet God because he mows the grass at the church in the summer and plows the snow in the winter or paints the building, you do him no good. If your sister thinks she's ready to see Jesus in peace because she sings in the choir, what are you doing to warn her of the coming judgment? If your brother makes a large contribution to the church for a special project, does he think his money buys him a slot in heaven? Our children need to know that if they continue to lie to their parents and disobey their instructions and refuse to honor them, there's a spot in hell reserved for them unless they repent. Romans 1 verse 30. Gulp. Ooh, that's a pill to swallow. So what I'm asking, where is the boldness of John the Baptist in our role as ambassadors for Christ? The judgment comes with Jesus' return. So I'm asking, will your neighbors, will your relatives be prepared? And if not, who will God hold accountable? There's a terrible terrible passage in the book of Ezekiel and I hate it. I shudder in fear every time I read it. But it's so sobering. It's so disturbing and so appropriate in light of our role as ambassadors for Christ. I have to read it. Here's what it says. Son of man, he's talking about Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sins. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. 
But if you do warn the wicked man to turn away from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die as a result of his sins, but you will have saved yourself. Ezekiel 33, verses 7 through 10. Read it over a number of times. It'll scare you to death. If it scares us into activity, it's a good scare. I don't know what that does to you, but it makes my blood run cold and coagulate in my veins. If we know the truth about the coming judgment and we refuse to issue warnings to sinners, we are responsible for withholding the only message which might wake them up and allow them to smell the coffee before they perish in their sin. God considers such loveless action on our part as reprehensible. You thought you were loving people by telling them what they wanted to hear. You thought you were loving them by never making any waves. By turning and looking the other way. By not speaking out. By not trying to dissuade sinners from their course of destruction. But that makes you culpable for their doom. And it jeopardizes your own life. Do we really care? Do we really love? The whole message of judgment is meant to warn sinners so they can flee from the coming wrath. It's the best way that you can love them. Listen to God's own analysis. And he's speaking to Ezekiel, still in that text. Say to them, Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. We need to ask people that. Why do you stubbornly persist in a course that leads to your destruction? Why are you heading for a course where you will die? And in this text we have the intent of God in his message of judgment. The message of judgment is designed to cause sinners to repent and turn from their sins. Are you, am I, a faithful ambassador for the coming Christ? Our task should be that of Paul. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, says Paul. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you. Night and day with tears. Acts 20, verse 26 and following. Paul's ministry was one of warning. What effect, humanly speaking, would John the Baptist have had on the people of his day had there been no condemnation, no warning, no call to repentance in his appeal. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Do you know that's the role of an ambassador? Let me read you just a short paragraph or two from Nikki Haley's speech to the UN Security Council on July 5th concerning North Korea. To my friends on the Security Council, I must say that today is a dark day. It is a dark day because yesterday's action by North Korea made the world a more dangerous place. Their illegal missile launch was not only dangerous, but reckless and irresponsible. It showed that North Korea does not want to be part of a peaceful world. They have cast a dark shadow of conflict on all nations that strive for peace. The United States does not seek conflict. In fact, we seek to avoid it. We seek only the peaceful de-escalation of the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and to an end of the threatening actions by North Korea. Regretfully, we're witnessing just the opposite. May no mistake, North Korea's launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile is a clear and sharp military escalation. The North Korean regime openly states that its missiles are intended to deliver nuclear weapons to strike cities in the United States, South Korea, and Japan. And now it has greater capacity to do so. In truth, it is not only the United States and our allies that are threatened. North Korea's destabilization escalation is a threat to all nations in the regions and beyond. Their actions are quickly closing off the possibilities of a diplomatic solution. The United States is prepared to use the full range of our capabilities to defend ourselves and our allies. One of our capabilities lies with our considerable military forces. We will use them if we must, but we prefer not to have to go in that direction. So in order to have an impact, in order to move North Korea off its military escalation, we must do more. We will not look exclusively at North Korea. We will look at any country that chooses to do business with this outlaw regime. We will not have patience for stalling or talking our way down to a watered-down resolution. Yesterday's intercontinental ballistic missile escalation requires an escalated diplomatic and economic response. Time is short. Action is required. The world is on notice. If we act together, we can still prevent a catastrophe and we can rid the world of a grave threat. If we fail to act in a serious way, there will be a different response. What's she doing? She's laying her cards on the table. In a geopolitical diplomacy to avoid war, 
if possible. That's the work of an ambassador. Lay it out. Tell it like it is. What are we doing in our ambassadorship representing the king of glory to avoid hell and destruction for our friends and neighbors? Are we telling it true? Here's what's coming, folks. Here's what's going to happen if you don't repent of your sin and come to Christ. We didn't say it. God's word says it. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And he's the one that's coming in power and great glory. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophecy of Malachi. Thank you for the work of John the Baptist, your four uh, messenger. It couldn't have been easy for John to speak the warnings, the judgments, the condemnations that he had to speak in a day when all, even the religious leaders of, of Israel were corrupt and refused to, refused to tell the truth to the people that they might repent and live. They would rather have painted things in rosy colors, let the people go to sleep, die in their sin. Lord, help us to be bold for the sake of the gospel. I don't know how many days we have yet, how many years. I do know that when the coming of Christ is realized, it will be a day of judgment and condemnation. We need to prepare our relatives and friends, those we say we love. We need to prepare them for that day by telling the truth about Jesus Christ. This time when he comes, he's not coming as a little baby in a manger. He's coming on a white steed with an inscription on a banner that says, King of Kings and Lord. Will we be ready? I pray we will. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 133. We'll stand as we sing. 133. Let's sing.
Now our Christmas concert is today, this afternoon at 3 o'clock back here. Hope you will all show up for that. Jared is the uh, choir teacher at Swartz Creek High School. So he will be bringing all of his Swartz Creek High School choirs here this afternoon. They will be joining with our choir to sing praise songs to Christ concerning his birth and coming. So I hope you'll be here for that time. Then there's a time of fellowship and refreshment after that. Bring food with you and all teenagers love to eat. And um, we'll see you at that time. Before that comes about, we need help this morning, right now, before you go home, to get this platform ready. This pulpit has to be moved to the office. That piano has to be, that is very heavy. And me with a bum hand, I'll be of little help. But with, when the piano gets moved down here, this gets moved into the office. Chairs. Chairs, what, downstairs? They gotta come up. Well, how many do we need, Jared? 20 some? At least. 25. 25 chairs on top of what we got here in the choir already. So a lot of little work. If we have many hands, we'll make it light. We'll get it done in a few minutes. Thank you. We're dismissed. Yeah, you need to use the book. Go ahead. Hey, Andrew. Which I was gonna say.